Greetings, you're listening to the ABF Journal podcast. I'm Phil Neifer, Managing Editor of ABF Journal. In this week's episode, Matt Little, a partner in global specialty finance and business development at Castle Lake, discussed the many effects of rising inflation on consumer and commercial credit finance, as well as other secular and cyclical trends in specialty finance, such as bank retrenchment and its impact on leverage lending, and a lot more. Let's get to the call. Hey, Matt, how are you doing today? I am doing well, Phil. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for joining. Uh, before we jump into all the stuff we're going to talk about today, can you tell me just a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Uh, so uh, I am a partner at Castle Lake. Uh, Castle Lake is a Minneapolis-based alternative investment manager, uh, and I'm responsible for our specialty finance business and what we call business development, which is really all of the uh, funding and financing activities uh, for the firm, i.e. Uh, fundraising, as well as the uh, finding of debt capital for uh, all the various things that we buy. Okay, and today we're going to cover a pretty wide range of topics, um, but to start with, um, we're going to talk about inflation a little bit, um, which is on top of mind for a lot of people, just, I mean, not a lot of people, just about everyone. Um, can you tell me about how this ongoing rise in inflation is affecting consumer credit finance? Yeah, um, absolutely. Inflation is a topic that we spend a lot of time thinking about. It has a lot of uh, implications across our portfolio and how we position ourselves. Uh, you know, first of all, it just it just starts with the actual effect on the consumer, um, and uh, you know, you can't talk about inflation without recognizing the human toll that it takes. Um, and I think that that toll uh, uh, can be disproportionate in its effect on different segments of our society. Uh, and so today, um, when you think about the effect of inflation, the cost of living in the Western world is going up. And it's going up for, uh, uh, I would say, um, not just things people want to have, but things people need to have. Uh, you know, obvious example being filling up uh, your car with gas. Uh, today is more expensive uh, in many parts of the country than it's ever been. Um, and really, you know, one thing that's offsetting that currently has been the super tight labor market that we've had. And so uh, today, while you have uh, uh, cost of living increases really at a rate not seen in call it 30 plus years, um, you also have one of the tightest labor markets in history. And so to some degree, the increase in wages at the uh, um, lower end of the economic spectrum are offsetting the effect of rising prices. But you know, it's not clear that that uh, increase in wages truly offsets all of the increase in cost of living. And I would say, you know, that segment of the economy um, can be uh, more fragile. And so, you know, it's our expectation that wage growth will not be able to keep up with uh, cost increases in lockstep uh, uh, forever. Um, and I think, you know, you've just seen some headlines more recently. Uh, now these are coming out of um, uh, maybe some of the more like Wall Street firms like Goldman Sachs, for example, 
uh, referenced tightening sort of the hiring belt. And so you, you are seeing firms, I think, be more cautious uh, in response to inflation. Um, and that, of course, is going to lead to uh, you know, that increase in, in wages probably slowing down. You know, one of the funny things about inflation is there's the actual effect of it, and then there's the expectation of it. And those two things create, I would say, different ripples in the economy. Today, with rising prices, people notice it. And they say, okay, well, I may respond behaviorally by not taking that marginal trip to go out for dinner. I might not take that marginally uh, longer drive to go visit my in-laws. Um, people are going to respond real time to increases in prices. Uh, then there's the business expectation and what goes into uh, sort of C-suite models as they think about planning their businesses. And one of the things that I think is so tough about inflation and, and getting it under control and why you know, the Federal Reserve uh, has its work cut out for them is that cycle becomes somewhat self-fulfilling, i.e. when uh, uh, people start reacting to the real-time um, increases in prices, which then makes business managers input into their model um, longer-term inflation expectations of the inputs of the costs of whatever goods they're going to sell, that leads to then price increases going forward. Um, and so inflation is just one of those things that's it's, it's quite tricky to get a handle on. Um, and so it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out over the next several years um, as, you know, the, the, the economic environment changes. Um, you know, the last point I would make is the consumer, financially speaking, is actually quite healthy. Um, when you think about individuals and families balance sheets following the pandemic, they're actually in pretty good shape. Uh, people saved money uh, even before the pandemic and the effect of stimulus. Uh, households in the US were actually in uh, pretty darn good shape. I think the, the financial crisis, frankly, scarred people. Um, and so generally speaking, uh, heading into uh, COVID, uh, households were actually in a better place from a leverage perspective than they were in say, you know, 2007, um, when, you know, the last time we had a really big, nasty uh, macro event. And um, uh, I think that um, as, as uh, you know, uh, people respond to the inflationary uh, environment, um, that behavior is just, is, is just gonna, is just gonna change. And so as um, a business environment uh, plans more, you'll see consumers having to react to prices at, at the pump and on the grocery shelves. Um, and it's not clear when that's going to stop. Yeah. And then taking this over to kind of look at the commercial side, because that's kind of more what we cover here. Um, what are some of the effects of inflation or the ones that you're seeing on the consumer credit size? What can they tell us or what might they mean for the commercial credit finance side? Yeah, so a couple things. Um, so what does inflation do on the commercial side? Well, number one is the, the point I was making earlier that businesses as they do their five-year planning uh, are going to be inputting 
cost increases on the sort of cost of goods sold side, which then has a flow through effect of their actual uh, goods costing more in the future. So from a business planning perspective, I think it makes uh, people just expect prices to go up over a longer term horizon. Uh, then in sort of the, the earlier point I was trying to get to where we were talking about consumers' health actually being pretty darn good, but consumer sentiment being absolutely terrible. You know, inflation has a psychological implication across both business sort of and the individual. That's it's really, you know, it's tough to quantify. You do it via surveys that tell people how they how you feel. Um, but it affects behavior in somewhat unpredictable ways. And so this, this current round of inflation is absolutely uh, causing businesses to be more conservative. Um, I think one of the other ways that it's affecting the business environment is just expectation of interest rates. You know, over the past 10 years, you've had an environment where money was really cheap. You know, some would, some would call it free. Um, and so you had a lot of growth in asset classes really fueled by cheap credit growth. Um, and with inflation, that the only way to get that under control, of course, is to, to raise base rates. Um, and so those businesses that have been relying on really cheap costs of funds for long periods of time, uh, it's not like that can come back very quickly. I would say, unlike, say, uh, in March of 2020, when equity markets took a steep nosedive and the federal government came in and pumped a bunch of money into the system, which caused a rebound in pricing in a very you know, rapid manner. Uh, today, what we see in credit markets, there's no exogenous actor that can come in and you know, sort of make the cost of credit go down. In fact, the exogenous actor has to do the exact opposite thing, i.e. make the cost of credit go up uh, to respond to the inflationary environment. So you know, to, to summarize, I guess I would say the way it's affecting the commercial environment is long-term planning, prices are going up. Uh, psychologically, people aren't feeling great about the business environment. And then when you think simply about the cost of funding a business, that's gone up too. So that marginal growth is more expensive to reach for. Yeah, that makes sense. So obviously inflation is gonna to continue to be top of mind, but what are some other of uh, the most important secular or cyclical trends you're seeing in specialty finance this year? Within specialty finance, you really can't talk about um, specialty finance as an asset class without talking about credit markets. Uh, you know, especially finance is the, at least the way we think about it, it is the um, providing of credit outside of the traditional banking system. And so uh, you really can't discuss providing credit to people without talking about what the cost of that credit is. It's sort of a, it's, it's, it's an input cost for the business. Um, and so we are certainly in a cyclical credit environment, right? So today um, we are in an increasing cost of credit uh, uh, environment from a, um, a cycle perspective. A lot of businesses were set up over the past, call it five to 10 years to provide credit 
to, to either underserved segments of the economy or providing credit in new ways. You know, think like buy now, pay later, for example, which has been a very popular product um, uh, over the past, call it 10 years. Um, and a lot of those businesses, I would say, were in hyper growth mode and hugely reliant on uh, wholesale funding markets that were very benign. Uh, and one of the opportunity sets that you know, we at Castle Lake um, are, are excited about is the ability to provide credit to specialty finance companies. Um, you know, maybe, those, maybe those types of companies would have been accessing the securitization markets um, in a better market. But today, the securitization markets are um, you know, either much more expensive, so our, our meaning our fund cost of capital is a lot more competitive, or in many instances, those, um, you know, those wholesale funding ABS markets are uh, just closed to some of those issuers. And so you're gonna see, I think a pretty, pretty big shift in the funding mix for specialty finance businesses generally. And that funding mix is likely going to be more expensive over the next several years than it has been over the preceding several years. Cause I would argue it, it really couldn't have been any cheaper um, than it was over the preceding several years where we had you know, an extremely low uh, interest rate environment. Um, then sort of specific to especially uh, uh, finance in a, in a secular fashion, um, you know, I mentioned the theme of people providing credit uh, in new and different ways to consumers. I do think that there will be con consolidation. Um, you know, a lot of products have been invented to provide credit to businesses and consumers, you know, from, from, from my perspective, that is a societal good, um, i.e., you know, being able to provide credit to keep the economic engine of households and consumers going is an intrinsically good thing to do. This having been said, um, you've seen a proliferation, both in terms of the number of different products and frankly, the number of different originators originating those products. Um, where you probably don't need that many different businesses. And so in response to a tighter environment, in my mind, you're likely to see some consolidation as people look to um, sort of achieve economies of scale and take costs out of the system. Because uh, uh, a lot of businesses were set up predicated on achieving really high growth targets, which likely would have happened in a benign interest rate and credit environment, but in a not so benign interest rate and credit market environment, uh, I think people need to tighten the belt. And one of the ways to do that is of course, you know, go for a larger scale by you know, combining with some of your competitors. So bank retrenchment has been an ongoing trend since the great recession. Um, how do you think this has evolved over the years and do you expect it to continue, especially in the environment we're in right now? Yeah. So. You know, Castle Lake and I would say the alternative investment management community has been a beneficiary of bank retrenchment. Um, and you think about, you know, what has that really meant and the why. Um, banks have pulled back from providing cre uh, credit to different segments of the economy, largely because regulation in certain parts of the market have made it unprofitable uh, to do so since the Great Recession. Uh, 
Um, and those regulations have taken different forms. Uh, so when you think about providing credit to say small businesses, um, KYC requirements for banks have made it more difficult to provide that credit. Uh, and this is, I would say, a trend that's particularly true in, in Europe. Um, you know, when you think about things like KYC, that is effectively a fixed cost, i.e., and I'm gonna make up a number here to illustrate a point, but perhaps it costs you, you know, $1,000 or $2,000 to run whatever checks you need to in order to make sure that you're not facilitating transactions with sort of a bad actor. Well, if a business is borrowing a million dollars, it's easy enough to justify that cost. If a business wants to borrow $50,000, it's really tougher to justify that cost. So banks have been driven, I would say, up market on the business side. I think there are similar reasons why they've been driven up market um, on the consumer side as well. Uh, you know, one of the things that banks have wanted to do is really cross-sell credit products, uh, i.e., you know, you have your checking account with the same institution where you have, you know, a brokerage account, et cetera. Um, and obviously, uh, scale benefits the financial institution in that regard. So you've had huge segments of the population, both on the business side and on the consumer side, um, really be underserved by the banking community. And we expect that to, to, to continue. Um, one other reason, particularly on the business side, is that capital charges in things like asset-based finance have gone up. Um, so uh, the Basel uh, capital rules have effectively forced banks to hold more capital against things like asset-based finance. Uh, and so uh, the ROEs to those financial institutions for doing that kind of activity have decreased. And we expect you know, those trends to continue, not, not the least of which, obviously there's the regulatory reasons why they will uh, uh, continue to increase. And there's just the people reasons. You know, as the banking system has become a more cumbersome environment from which to operate, uh, a lot of the individuals who you know, have the human capital or talent to be providing credit from within those institutions have decided that you know, they wanna go try something else. To my earlier point about uh, seeing a proliferation of businesses looking to provide credit outside of the banking system, uh, a lot of the people came from within the banking system. And while you can't make loans if you don't have the people to oversee those processes. So yeah, it's a trend that has gone on for 10 years, um, but we expect to go on uh, certainly for the foreseeable future. And as this trend continues, and as it occurred in the past, what is it meant for leverage lending rules in particular? Yeah, so the leverage lending rules are, are a funny one. Um, if you think about post-financial crisis, effectively the U.S. regulators said, banks in the U.S., you are going to be out of the leverage lending business. They effectively capped leverage that banks could provide and they did it at relatively conservative levels, which meant that you saw this wholesale shift of banks being the ones providing you know, middle market LBO loans to uh, uh, now very large, uh, well now very large, but at the time uh, newly created uh, credit funds. And so the huge beneficiaries of that regulation 
were um, uh, those, you know, those middle market credit managers, um, uh, of which you know the the growth of those platforms has just been exponential over the past years. So you past ten years. So you've seen really a wholesale shift, if you will, of where that uh, credit has come from. As we look forward over the next, call it five to ten years, you know, one of the opportunity sets Castle Lake is quite passionate about is the asset based um, portion of the market. So uh, the U.S. banking system hadn't been as large a provider of asset-based finance, uh, even, really even pre-financial crisis versus say the European banking system uh, or the American arms of European banks. Uh, and with those capital rules I was talking about earlier where the capital charge um, under uh, Basel IV being higher for asset-based lending, again, I think it just pushes banks out of providing types of credit to the economy that they historically have. So yeah, we, we see a real retrenchment and we don't actually see it going away. We actually see it in some ways accelerating. Yeah, and what does this retrenchment mean for borrowers, especially small business borrowers? Yeah, so, so there's a lot of newer firms interested in providing credit to those now underserved segments of the economy. I think one of the great things about the American market in particular um, uh, is, you know, within this country, um, there are there's a real entrepreneurial spirit, and so you've had the creation of new businesses eager to provide uh, credit to those segments of the economy um, where uh, uh, the banking system is retrenched. Now, I think one of the differences is, you know, you're, you're, it's more likely that that small business is going to be getting credit from uh, an online platform that originates loans for small businesses versus say 10 years ago uh, when that same store owner might've walked down the street to her, his or her local bank uh, and, and, and spoken to a loan officer and gotten that loan. So I think the availability of credit will still be there, but how that credit is obtained and from whom it is obtained, I think is under a, a pretty tectonic shift. Yeah, and I know part of the reason that you know, banks might be moving away from these kind of borrowers is because of fixed costs. Why do, why do these fixed costs make uh, these types of borrowers less profitable for banks? Yeah. So, per my earlier example about, say, KYC as a as as an example, um, you know, when you think about the banking system, regulation is a very blunt tool, and when you write a rule designed with very good intentions uh, to uh, say, clean up a bad activity. Um, you know, uh, for example, um, uh, if a rule were passed because there was a scandal involving a large bank providing a large amount of money uh, to say a sanctioned entity. Um, well, I think that rule is great. And that rule entirely makes sense. Um, comma, but if providing a $500 million loan is, faces the same amount of scrutiny, if you will, um, as providing a $20,000 loan. Um, all else being equal, the bank's gonna only wanna provide the $500 million loan because you get to spread those fixed costs over a much larger borrowing amount. Uh, and so um, I think one of the things that, that we see is again, that continued push 
for the banking system to provide credit to sort of that top tier customer. That's both in terms of credit quality, but it's also really in terms of size. Um, because if you have to maintain a pretty sophisticated infrastructure just to make sure that everything fits within the regulatory framework box, um, you know, it, it's it, if you paint with such a wide brush, I think you have some unintended consequences, i.e. the little guy probably gets squeezed out of it. So you mentioned that uh, small business owners are now maybe looking more towards online platforms, things of that nature. How can those types of platforms, but independent lenders in gen general, take advantage of this opportunity that's being presented in the marketplace because banks are moving backwards? So a variety of ways. Uh, one, you know, their customer acquisition costs can be a lot cheaper. So in my example of a business owner walking down the street to go to their local bank to get a loan, well, you know, having a large bank branch and a bunch of people in it is a very expensive thing to do. Um, you know, the real estate costs a lot of money, the people costs a lot of money. Um, and so by keeping things like customer acquisition costs lower, those new businesses providing credit uh, can actually meaningfully reduce um, what it costs to actually put the loan on the books and thus be able to provide credit potentially um, at, at more favorable terms or be able to provide credit sort of at the same cost, but in a more profitable way to the credit originating entity because they were able to get that customer um, without such a high fixed cost base. And so we see the proliferation of, um, call it smaller cost footprint asset origination businesses is actually being a really good thing um, for, for those underserved segments of the economy to get credit. Um, uh, but it's also just a huge opportunity for those businesses to, to provide credit to those underserved customers. So we've talked about inflation and bank retrenchment so far. Another trend I wanted to talk about is the upheaval we've seen in the labor market across most sectors. Um, how do you think that kind of upheaval is affecting asset-based finance in particular? Yes, the great resignation. Um, it, it's affecting it for real. Uh, one of the ways it's affecting it is people saying, you know what, I don't feel like taking uh, 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 a whole bunch of internal training every month because I work within the context of a highly regulated institution, or I don't wanna work within a business where the growth of that business is you know, highly regulated. And so if there's a really interesting opportunity set, I can't um, capitalize it or capitalize on it or compete. And so you've seen uh, a lot of the human capital vote with their feet and decide, you know what? I don't wanna go be providing asset-based loans from uh, the confines of a uh, money center bank balance sheet. I'd rather go work at a startup where I can own some upside individually. Um, and if the market environment changes, I can adapt more rapidly. You know, as financial institutions have gotten so big, uh, they're very challenged in moving quickly and sort of changing how they do things. And they're also in many instances burdened by 
huge technology infrastructures. I think one of the things that's really attracted uh, individuals within asset-based finance, but other types of esoteric finance as well, to leave um, sort of the behemoth banking system is not being constrained by very large uh, pre-existing both rules and ways of doing business and technology platforms. Uh, it's very difficult for a, uh, uh, call it a legacy bank to create a new and cool app, if you will, that neatly fits into all of their legacy systems. And for compliance reasons, it has to fit into all of their legacy systems. But if you start something from scratch, you're starting with a blank sheet of paper. Um, and so I think that white space has been a really attractive opportunity and a lot of people have decided to pursue it by voting with their feet. Yeah, and then uh, as we keep going with all these trends that are, are particularly pertinent right now, um, some people say that we're already hitting re recession levels, um, but we haven't technically officially hit one, I guess. Um, do you think that a recession is imminent? And if so, when do you think it would officially take hold? So uh, our view from an underwriting perspective is it's more likely than not that we're going to have a recession. Um, and we may already be in one, we won't know uh, uh, for several quarters. And obviously a recession has a, a, a pretty specific definition. Uh, you know, I tend to think about it in terms of just adverse economic environment. And we're already there, right? Credit markets tend to be a leading indicator. The cost of credit has, has doubled. Just look at where mortgage rates in the US have gone. Um, they have effectively doubled. There has to be an effect, effect on uh, the consumer from an increased sort of in the cost of their life of that, of that magnitude. Um, the other thing about recessions and the way they affect the economy is, is consumer sentiment. And as I talked about earlier, consumer sentiment is at an all-time low. Um, so whether or not we meet this specific definition of a recession, which I think we will, but even if we don't sort of Many of the ancillary negative effects of a recession, i.e., you know, people wanting to pare back um, investment in their businesses, uh, people being uh, meaning at the consumer level a little bit more cautious about how they spend their hard-earned money. I think we're there. Um, you see it in how people are behaving, and you see it in the surveys of how people feel. Yeah. So today we've covered. Uh inflation, potential recession, um, upheavals in the labor market. We've covered a lot of different trends, but are there some other developments um, you're either seeing or expecting to materialize later this year that you think are worth uh, keeping an eye on? It, absolutely. Um, so I would say credit performance in, in loan portfolios is something we're keeping a really watchful eye on. Uh, as I mentioned, sentiment is terrible but people actually have reasonably healthy balance sheets and you've seen some wage inflation to offset increase of costs in people's lives. Uh, I don't think those two things have totally held up in lockstep, but it has been helpful that you have seen an increase in wages. Um, one of the things we're monitoring very closely is losses in loan portfolios. Um, you know, are those starting to tick up? And you've seen in some sub-segments uh, uh, those 
loss rates tick up, i.e. if you look in, uh, for example, some of the deeper subprime auto securitizations, you've seen a bit of a tick up um, in loss rates. Uh, but we, you know, we monitor credit across the full spectrum, i.e. You know, credit cards, uh, student loans, installment loans, auto loans, et cetera. And you haven't seen anything that I would say is hugely concerning, um, but it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Um, if people are feeling really bad and costs are increasing and wages are not able to keep up with those cost increases, it is logical um, that you will see a deterioration in credit performance more broadly, which of course will have a knock on future effect of making the providers of credit more cautious about providing credit going forward. So in some ways, if you have the losses now, uh, it winds up producing a more adverse uh, credit environment going forward because people tighten the reins. So that's something we're really keeping you know, a watchful eye on because uh, the economy is so dependent on uh, individuals and businesses being able to get credit. I'd say one of the other things we're really watchful on is just, of course, the, the cost of living. Um, everybody's feeling it. Uh, uh, if you drive a car, it is, it is impossible not to notice it. Uh, if you're like me and you're a renter, uh, you worry about uh, what your next rent increase is going to be when your lease comes up, because when you read the newspaper, it tells you that it's going to go up by a lot. Uh, and so whether you're worried about it in your, in your individual life um, or you're, you're synthesizing from that what's going on in the broader economy, uh, taking a look at the cost of living and how it's impacting consumer behavior is another thing that we're keeping a really watchful eye on because that has huge implications uh, for how people are going to be spending their money going forward. I think it was pretty interesting when you saw um, some of the big box retailers talk about how after all these supply chain issues that we've been facing, um, some of them actually are flush with inventory. Uh, I think that tells you that the consumer, you know, regardless of what the consumer's balance sheet is, it's telling you that the consumer is being more cautious about how they're spending their money. Uh, and that has really big implications for growth. Well, we'll definitely be watching a lot of these developments along with you, Matt. And uh, thank you for giving all your insights on, on all this stuff. I know it's stuff that I'm interested in. And I know it's stuff our listeners are as well. So thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having me, Phil. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks again to Matt for joining the show. And thank you for listening. This has been the ABF Journal Podcast. We'll talk again soon.